Dr. Spence, ladies and gentlemen, we meet in a building the purpose and design of which is recognition. In 1854, Edmund Blackett's Tudor Perpendicular Gothic design for this great hall was intended to recognise the debt of this university to the ancient universities of Oxford and Cambridge, and more generally to recognise its debt to the Western tradition of teaching and learning. But it's not just the, the design of the building. The purpose of this great hall is to provide a suitable venue to recognise the learning of graduands who are presented to the Chancellor for admission to their degrees. I well remember receiving two degrees from Dame Leone here, and it remains a powerful symbol of recognition for me, as I'm sure it does, not just for other graduates of this university, but for the families of those graduates who share in their recognition. So it's fitting that, meeting here today, we should ask the Socratic question, what is recognition? And it's equally fitting that we have one of our university's most illustrious graduates, Noel Pearson, to help answer the question. He was a member of the expert panel on constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians, established by the Gillard government, and has been an active advocate of recognition since then. Successive Australian governments have affirmed their commitment to some form of recognition. Indeed, it's a bipartisan commitment, as is affirmed time and again by the Leader of the Opposition. Mr Pearson has been thinking about recognition in new and different ways for the last few years, and has been engaging with members of the government and opposition about the possibilities for recognition in the Constitution. I represent the Constitution Education Fund Australia, which is committed to educating all Australians about the history and operation of the Australian Constitution and the system of government that operates under it. We've established an Educating About Recognition initiative with the support of our principal partner for Educating About Recognition, the leading global law firm, Baker and McKenzie. This is the first of a number of conversations that we hope to hold around the country canvassing a range of views on the government's program for amending the Constitution. I know that CIFA's Chief Executive, Kerry Jones, is thrilled that the first of these is being held at her old university as part of the Sydney Ideas series and hopes the conversation will continue next year at CIFA's proposed Australian Constitution Centre in Old Parliament House. This building's also a fitting place for Mr Pearson to conduct a conversation with the University of Chicago's Professor Jonathan Lear. Raphael's famous fresco, The School of Athens at the Vatican, depicts Plato pointing up and Aristotle pointing in front. In this great hall, if you look up, you'll see the angel presiding over the study of dialectic holds a book inscribed with one of Aristotle's diagrams. And if you look in front, you'll see the Aboriginal flag added more recently to recognise the antecedent indigenous heritage of this place. Thus, it's a fitting place to welcome Professor Lear, a philosopher whose career began with a study of Aristotle's logic and has most recently come to focus on questions concerning indigenous heritage. Professor Lear is visiting Sydney at the invitation of Psyche and Society's director, Dr Talia Morag, who's recruited the generous support of four organisations to sponsor his visit. The Australian Psychoanalytical Society, Creating a Safe, Secure Environment, the Sydney Institute for Psychoanalysis, and the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I'm delighted that the university's Vice-Chancellor, Dr Michael Spence, is with us and has kindly agreed to offer a few words of welcome to Mr Pearson, Professor Lear, and the university's other guests this evening. Before he does so, however, I have the honour to call upon Professor Shane Houston, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Indigenous Strategy and Services, to provide an acknowledgement of country. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Houston. Vice-Chancellor, Noel, Jonathan, Marcia, Duncan, Pam, people uh, all welcome. Um, many years ago, I was part of a committee that helped organise the visit of Pope John Paul II to Australia. And one of the events that we were organising was an event in Alice Springs. And there was a tussle in the committee that was organising this event. 
as to who should welcome the Pope. And on the one side of this committee, there were Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people saying, Aboriginal kids should meet the Pope. And on the other side of the committee, there were Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids saying, all kids should meet the Pope. Um, so we thought the best thing to do in trying to resolve this dilemma was to ask traditional owners. So we went and had a yarn with a very wise old man, Wet Rabunja, and he was very clear in what he said to us. He said that if a child is born on Yipirinya land, they're a Yipirinya child. Now, he wasn't saying that every child born would become an Aboriginal child. He was reminding us that every child born on this land, in this country, has a responsibility to land, has a responsibility to care for it, has a responsibility to ensure that it is nurtured. Acknowledgements to country are part of that same tradition. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have held ceremony to welcome others to their land. In parts of Australia, people who would move from their own territories into other people's territories would call out when they approached borders and they would sit and they would wait. And then local owners would come and welcome them to their land and wish them well as they journeyed. So a welcome or acknowledgement to country isn't a perfunctory or politically correct thing that we do. It is something that is continuing a tradition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that has lasted for generations. And while Damien has pointed out the magnificent history, the Western history of this building, think for a moment also that when you look at the timbers that hold up this roof, they're timbers taken from Bundjalung country on the north coast of New South Wales, that the marble floors were quarried from Gandangara country to the southwest of Sydney, and that the sandstone that holds up these magnificent beams was quarried from Mongol and Gadigal country. Acknowledgement of Gadigal people is around us everywhere, not only in this building, not only in the tradition of acknowledgement, but also in the history of this place. The ridge between, the Miserton Road ridge behind us was actually the back of a monitor, a big lizard, and it roughly marked the boundary between Gadigal and Wongal territory. There are history lessons to be learned everywhere. And as you reflect tonight on what will be, I think, an exciting and provocative conversation, think too about traditional people, the Gadigal people who have cared for this land for so many thousands of years. On your behalf, I wish to acknowledge their continuing stewardship of the spirit and of this place. Thank you. Thank you, Shane, for your acknowledgement of country. And I, too, would like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, we are incredibly proud that people have been teaching and learning on this site for tens of thousands of years. And I pay my respects to elders, both past and present. Well, both Shane and Damien have talked about this building, and so I shall, too. Um, they've talked about this building as having a particular symbolic meaning, but, in fact, the meaning is slightly more complex than they've suggested. This building is about identity and about what was from the very beginning a contested identity. Oh yes, in some ways this is a reference to the European learning tradition, but it was actually a radical statement in the 1850s that said we can do it as well here as anywhere in the world and in an institution founded on distinctive principles at a time when other institutions had religious and property tests, the first in the world on the, for entrance on the basis of academic merit alone. It was an identity that was in some way shared but also contested. Well, identity is an important issue. And for us, the reason that we have the most senior Indigenous academic leadership in the country, in the position that Professor Houston occupies, and the reason that our Wingaramura strategy touches on every aspect of the university's work is that we think Aboriginal education is for this institution an identity issue. We want to know what it means to be an Australian university and not merely a university transplanted. That's what we've been trying to work out since 1850. And for most of our history, we were blind to the fact that in having that conversation, we were excluding the fact that people had been living here for 70,000 years. 
Now with our indigenous partners across the country, we want to have a different kind of conversation, a conversation about our own identities as Australians, contested as that is, a conversation that says, what does it mean? What does it mean to be, to live, to work in a place that you share with communities that have been in continuous cultural tradition for that period of time and that have a lively contribution to make to world culture now. Well, that's about identity, and identities are about recognition. And it is a great privilege um, to welcome Mr. Pearson and Professor Lear to the university today for this conversation that I am very much looking forward to, and that I think is a conversation that touches on issues that are central to our future together as a country as we try to work out what it means to recognize our various stories, to recognize our histories, to recognize our futures, to understand better our shared and distinctive identities. They're questions about which there have been a lot of arguments in Australia. You'd expect them to be, there to be arguments about those things. They're important questions. And this is the place where we should be having those kinds of conversations. So welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening's conversation about recognition is going to be in three parts. First, Professor Lear and Mr. Pearson will talk together about recognition. Then we'll invite three panelists to comment on their conversation before finally we all retire into the quadrangle where there'll be an opportunity for us to continue the conversation about recognition with Mr. Pearson, Professor Lear, and our panelists. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Pearson and Professor Lear as they come up and take a seat to commence their conversation about recognition. I'm going to leave uh, Mr. Pearson and Professor Lear to have an uninterrupted conversation before I return to introduce this evening's panellists. But before I do so, I'd like to ask Mr. Pearson uh, to open the conversation by saying something about how he became aware of Professor Lear's work, his own understanding of recognition, and the connections that he sees between his advocacy for recognition of Indigenous peoples and Professor Lear's writing. Mr. Pearson. Thank you, Damien, Shane, Vice-Chancellor. <clears throat> I acknowledge the Gadigal people. I bring greetings from Cape York. I may have been uh, an illustrious graduate, but I cut a desultory figure as an undergraduate skulking around the corridors here um, many, many years ago. It was a time of great loneliness. I had the dark night of the soul in all of my four years on campus here, which continued for another two years in at Phillip Street. Nevertheless, I enjoyed my study and particularly in the history department and I'm so pleased to be back here to see the scene of my uh, anonymity. Um, I'm so very pleased that uh, this struggle for coming to terms with my own identity and really struggling to work out where it is that my people fit into this country. Uh, that I have an opportunity to be here with you tonight uh, with some sense of optimism about how we might answer that question. I'm so very pleased the university is now much better equipped to nurture young Indigenous scholars. 
I, I so much enjoyed my studies in history on campus here, and I got to know some very great teachers. And my, my honours thesis in history was actually the, the it was the, the fire that I had to go through to grapple with these questions about my own people, the Bukuyimadir people from Hopevale in Cape York Peninsula. And it was not until I worked that out, or worked that out of me, that I, I became a, a little bit more confident and I became uh, animated in our political struggle. In 2008-9, I, I had the accidental opportunity of receiving um, Jonathan Lear's book, Radical Hope. Um, I often receive random books from people in the mail. It's a great thing. <laughs> and uh, Radical Hope turned up in an envelope in Cairns and had the great pleasure of reading it. And it really um, inspired me in relation to our agenda for Cape York. It really helped me grapple with this great existential question about the future of our peoples. I am worried about the future of the Gugemer people and their language, their culture, their country, I'm worried about my mother's people, the Kuguyalanji. I'm worried about people who lived on this continent for tens of thousands of years, how their prospects could be so dim only after 200. So Professor Lear's book or, was a real, um, a, a, such a divine pleasure for me to read when he uh, laid out this idea of a radical hope for the future. I am in absolutely no doubt that our peoples in Cape York, the Wick peoples, the Umpila peoples, the Kanju peoples, the Yalanji peoples, the Lama Lama peoples, the Thayor peoples, all of these groups in Cape York I have a conviction that we will live long on the earth. We will strive to ensure that our cultures, our languages, our peoples and our traditions will continue to live long on the earth. But in order to do that, in order to secure the, the means for that to be realised, we have our determined program. That program is cultural, it's economic, it's political and constitutional. For all that we do in our efforts to empower our people, what we do at a structural level is decisive unless we create the means, the structural accommodation of the original peoples of this country, we'll continue to have the parlous situation play out. Of course, the most notorious indicator of that parlous situation is our imprisonment. 3% of the population furnishing 27% of our prisons. And if we don't think there is a structural explanation for that problem, we must, in its stead, harbour some kind of conviction in the innate criminality of Indigenous peoples. So I want to use this occasion this evening in commencing my conversation with Professor Lear to 
give him my, uh, express my great gratitude for uh, what he did for me personally, but also as a leader of a, a people whose very existence is on the line. And uh, I, I, um, I found this book a, a great inspiration and it's been a, a central part of our thinking um, about the way forward. And um, I, should, I should now really um, uh, uh, turn to Jonathan to um, ask him to uh, talk about um, the inspiration for his um, publication. Let's get it for two minutes. Thank you. Um, I will join Noel sitting down uh, in a moment, but I thought I'd just take two or three minutes um, to respond, um, to start the conversation. Uh, just say, when one starts a project, when I started this project, Radical Hope, um, I don't know, you know, one, one finds out later why one did it. Um, and um, I feel that um, here's the answer. Uh, one of my, I have one or two, I have maybe three answers, but the opportunity to um, meet Noel and enter into a conversation, um, it's just uh, e extraordinary for me. I'm sure you actually understand that. The book began, uh, I heard, a, I happened to hear at a lecture, just you know, in passing, a quotation of this man, Plenty Coup, uh, the last really great chief of the Crow Nation, um, who was asked by his biographer um, about what the move onto the reservation had been like for him. And at first he didn't want to answer, and then at some point, it, it, it's in an appendix of the biography, he said, um, when the people, uh, my, the, the, when the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground. We could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. And uh, when I heard those words, uh, and this is, I, I think is going to be, uh, for me, one of the things I really want to talk about tonight, I was struck. Uh, the words hit me. They moved me. And, uh, but it's also true it was lunchtime, and I had other things to do, and I, I, I moved along. Um, and about 15 to 20 years passed. And I just happened to be taking a walk along the lake, my Great Lake Michigan and uh, Chicago, and the words came back to me. And I realized that something, I had been addressed, something had been said to me, and I really had to do something about it. Um, I, I really turned around at the lake and went back and bought the book about Plenty Coup and then just sort of immersed myself in the history of Native American culture. Um, but I also went up to the Crow Reservation and I met with people who would meet with me, and I was um, given this extraordinary welcome by them. Um, one of the wonderful things about being a philosopher, uh, I mean, I, in my two fields of training is philosophy and um, psychoanalysis. One of the reasons, um, I, one of the great things about being a philosopher is um, you don't have to get the facts right. Um, you uh, can just speculate. And uh, I love that. You know, the, you have to get the facts right enough that your speculation is constrained by the truth. But I didn't feel constrained to figure out exactly what Plenty Coup meant by those words. I wanted to write a kind of thought experiment, an imaginative experiment, about what he might have meant if he were trying to say something true. If, if I imagined him as like standing witness to the truth. What would it be if we really took seriously after this, nothing happened? And so the essay is really a, uh, a meditation, um, which was my way of trying to show respect. I mean, this is a, uh, the other thing, I suppose, in terms of psychoanalysis is that the fact that I, um, uh, uh, the thought struck me, the thought that I was addressed here was a, something I noticed. And um, this is a, uh, I think a theme about recognition, which I really want to discuss with Noel, which is, I mean, I think 
Um, you know, when I hear recognition, I mean, firstly, I just worry very much that we don't want to turn this into a cliche. We want to make it real. And what would it be for it to be real? I, I hear in recognition, recognize and think again. Let's, let's think again. What would it be to think again about an issue? And I think it's not just about the content of the issue, it's about the form of the issue. Is it possible to think again um, where in the rethinking you feel yourself addressed? That it's not just about them and recognizing them, but coming to recognize something in yourself um, and feeling that this is not, uh, it, it's about um, feeling some kind of calling here in the um, rethinking. Um, the issue that Noel raised, I mean, I firstly uh, about uh, loneliness when he uh, first arrived, arrived here, I'm very struck by that because in the aftermath of um, writing Radical Hope, we've actually had Crow students come to the University of Chicago, which is a real first, and I've really, I've learned firsthand just how lonely that can be um, for um, uh, people. But also in this issue that I think Noel was raising um, that, uh, about this existential question, that I, part of the reason I wrote the book is I came to realize that there's a kind of harm that it's, at least in, I can't speak for you, I'm, not, I'm an American, I'm not an Australian, and I, but I'll say from my culture and my history, there's a kind of harm that I think people were oblivious to because we, I mean, there's some kind of sort of common knowledge that American, Native Americans, and my, the Crow like to be called Indians, actually, Indians, um, have been harmed. But when, they, when words are used like trauma, the tendency is to think about a psychological condition, that the condition of psychological trauma. And one of the things I, that I th Radical Hope is really about is trauma that occurs to the culture when a way of life is prevented from continuing, what happens, what happens to the concepts with which people try to understand themselves? And, um, you know, if you can't, uh, this is, I think, a, a, an issue that strikes us really as human, whether we're indigenous or not indigenous, we are creatures who, for whom the fact that we are alive matters. And yet, we don't have deep, full confidence, especially, I think, in the modern condition about what, how does it matter? How should it matter? What are the concepts with which we want to understand ourselves? Do we have the concepts um, that are appropriate for understanding ourselves and finding meaning? Um, you know, and Noel, in his work, his book, uh, Radical Hope, brings up this issue of layered identities, which I think is just a, a brilliant uh, thought about, um, and I think this is about trying to find the sets of, of concepts and understandings with which we can face up to the fact that we're alive for a while and then we're going to die and that's it. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that I know what's going to happen after death, but th those are the basic th things we have to deal with. Can we find the concepts that are going to make this experience through life seem to us like a worthwhile uh, endeavor. A mean, you know, the word meaningful, I think, is quite literally true. Can we find the right meanings? And I think the, the issue, you know, at the level of abstraction, but I think a very important one that Noel is raising is, and can we let others find, can we find meanings where we can tolerate and celebrate um, the, the, the ways we want to understand each other and understand ourselves? Um, this, I think, is a, uh, you know, an absolutely crucial issue, and I'll, I'll just say that I think the, the point Noel is making at the, at the end of his introductory remarks is we need, um, this is, cannot be done just by um, uh, certain individual decisions, although I, you know, I, I just, I love the fact that I went up to the, uh, to the reservation because I heard that, those words, and I'll just say this about Plenty Coup, it's not just that he said those words about um, this, that after this nothing happened. It's that he said them. He was willing to talk to a white man and tell his story. 
And if it weren't that, you know, it was on the one hand, there's this uh, terrible statement about what happened. And on the other hand, there's this willingness to talk and have a conversation. If it weren't for that, I would have never heard of it. I would have never read the book. I would not have met Noel, which I have, have done now. So on the one hand, I think these following these personal connections and feeling the call is absolutely crucial. And then the other point that Noel raised, which I think is absolutely crucial, if we're to succeed, there do need to be structural changes or structural setups that make this possible. I'm not here to tell you in Australia what you should do. I mean, obviously not. But I do understand, and I do think I can say, um, that it's not just about individual decisions about how to, how to live with each other. It, there do need to be structural ways of life that are set in place so that we can, we can flourish together with the meanings that are going to make our lives meaningful. So maybe that's where I'll stop. Um, there's obviously something absurd about peoples who occupied this continent for 53,000 years plus needing to be recognised by those who've been here for a bit over 200. <laughs> How does that come about? Um, but of course the power structure of the last 200 years has so obscured that ancient history and continuing presence um, such that it demands some form of recognition in that new structure. Um, I kind of find myself uh, a bit troubled by the idea that um, about that absurdity, but understanding that if we're to recover and rebuild and prosper in the future, we've got to deal with the structures of power and the imperative for recognition in the new nation of Australia in order for that to happen. My only thought about that is that in that process, the rest of the country will come to recognise itself. Recognition will in fact be a mirror. If we do this right, recognition will not just be of the whitefellas of the blackfellas, but the whitefellas will come to be recognised themselves. My kind of simple truth about who we are as a country today is that, you know, we've got these three great sections. Firstly, there is our inescapable indigenous culture and heritage. The foundations of this country written on the landscape and Shane's very beautiful evocation of that on this land that we're on here today tells us the obvious fact that this country has an indigenous history, culture, heritage, and the, the landscapes of the country are imbued with um, the culture of our ancestors. I drive to my beach shack on Gugimir country down to the coast at a place called Yurkubaralbiko. And there's a place name every 50 metres up the coast. Benariko, Yurkubaralbiko, Binduiko, Manba. All of these places have an ancient history. And this is all over the continent. So the first part is that obvious indigenous foundation. The second part is the British institutions that were transplanted and erected on the soil. I'm actually not a 
repudiator of those British institutions. I think they inure for the benefit of all Australians. The rule of law, our system of democracy. These are things that are as much the heritage of Indigenous Australians as is of Vietnamese Australians, newly come to the country. The third part of what we are as a nation is obviously our multicultural triumph. What other country has succeeded as well as we have in bringing cultures and languages from all over the world to form a nation? We've got to get those three parts right. We've got to own those three parts. That is the complete commonwealth. Our indigenous foundations, our British institutions, and our multicultural achievement. And this concept of layered identities allows us to identify and associate with all of those layers in different ways depending upon where we come from. I'm inspired in large part, and I told Jonathan this morning, not knowing his Jewish ancestry, that obviously the Jewish community have been a huge inspiration to me. If you want a radical vision for the future, it is the vision that I have that the Kugimi, that the people can be like the Jews. We can keep the communal hearth of our culture and language and traditions and rituals for millennia. That is the lesson of the Jews. We can keep the hearth of our culture burning for as long as we have the determination to keep it. But that does not stop members of our community from engaging in the wider world at the very forefront of achievement and uh, success and individual endeavour and so on. We can be communal in part of our identity and utterly socialist or liberal, whatever our predilection might be. And we should encourage our young children of the future to participate in both worlds. Participate in the continued nurturing and survival of our communal hearth whilst making sure our children are also pursuing individual endeavour and engaging with the wider world. And that's why I wrote the essay, Jonathan, with such a focus on education. Yeah. Because it is furnishing our children with that, you know, the, the, the Johann Herder Road and the Adam Smith Road. We've got to walk both. Yeah. And the, the inspiration I, I take from the Jewish community here in Australia, with, which I, with whom I've spent a lot of time, my inspiration is that you are able to walk those two roads. Yeah. And there's nothing antithetical about keeping our communal identity whilst at the same time uh, engaging with the wider world. So Wonderful. I really appreciated the conversation this morning about that. Me too. I also, um, you know, I think I just also in meeting Noel, I, I have this sense of him channeling uh, Chief Plenikou, uh, because what Plenikou said to the Crow over and over again is, get educated. Um, it was, this was the key to, uh, that was his advice to his, uh, to his nation, that, it, it, that this was the, the greatest um, benefit they could, they could have, um, and they needed to take advantage of it or they would be destroyed. Um, but I'm fascinated. I mean, just uh, just I'll share this story with the group because I, you know, I had no idea that my Jewish heritage was going to matter so much to anybody. But um, when I, after my, I'll just share this anecdote with you. When I went up to the Crow Reservation after my book was published, I was asked to go to the tribal college to talk about the book. I didn't know how that would go. I didn't know whether they would 
liked the book, and I came and the room was full of tribal elders, the deans of the college, the faculty, the students. I you know, began to talk about this book, Radical Hope, and tribal elder immediately put up a hand and said, who are your people? Nobody had ever asked me that question before. Uh, now that I've spent more time uh, with the Crow, I realize you know you have to announce who your people, where you're from, before you speak. And I was just thinking on my feet. I didn't know what to say. And I just said, "Well, I I think the best uh, answer to that is I, you know I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew from the Jewish people." And it, it, at that very moment, it crossed my mind again for the first time that. The, pretty much to the year, it might have been a year off from the time they moved onto the reservation, was the time my family was fleeing Europe um, in, in the, the pogroms at the end of the uh, 19th century. And I, I told him that. And uh, it led to a, I mean, he, the second question was uh, by another tribal elder who put up his hand and said, uh, well, tell, you've got to tell us something. Why is it that the Jews never fight amongst each other, but we Crow are all, always fighting amongst each other. Um, I told him that that isn't exactly how it looks from a, a <laughs> Jewish perspective. Um, but, um, but it was funny because I, I've since been adopted into a Crow family. I have a Crow, two Crow brothers, and actually one, one of them made this for me, and when he heard I was coming here to meet Noel, he made one for Noel, and Noel put it on, so I put mine on. But uh, when he came to, the first time he came to Chicago, I said, you know, welcome to Chicago. We've got a week together. What would you like to do? And he said, I want to go to synagogue. <laughs> and uh, when I came to, the reason I mentioned this um, anecdote, I mean, partly because Noel raised it, but it's, I came to realize that the figure of the Jew was very important for Native peoples in a way that I did not know ahead of time because of just the sheer survival under adversity, and that we're still here. We're not just a memory. Uh, how did that happen? They want to know because they want to be here. Uh, they want to be here. And, um, uh, you know, the, the kinds of, uh, Noel mentioned just now, this existential question, what would it be for us to survive, for us any longer to be? And I think this is a, you know, a huge question that's in, I think one of the, this is what I heard Noel just speaking about, is like any tradition has got to, you know, it faces two dangers. One is just destruction or people just losing interest or losing the ability to live a way of life and it just goes the way of many, many cultures. And the other is um, a kind of rigidity where the tradition gets frozen in some image of whether it was 1850 becomes the only way any longer to be a crow. You have to do it that way. I mean, how can you go forward? Any tradition faces this. And I think that's really, when I read your work and then listening to you, this is what it seems to me you're really thinking through in a you know, practical way as well as a theoretical way, which is how do you make the adjustments that you're going to have? Any society is going to survive if it can adjust to the new challenges, but it can't survive if, it, it, if it's just sort of destroyed in the changing. So how do you keep the integrity of the traditions while also making the adjustments? And that's really what I, I sort of see you and hear you doing. That challenge um, at, at the end of the day is starts at, at a very mundane level. Children need to grow up in homes where their parents are discharging their responsibilities, growing them up in the language and the culture, uh, ensuring that education is, 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 is the prize um, that they never divert from. And uh, and having uh, res restoring uh, peace and um, in our communities, so much of the conflict is so unnecessary, and uh, and I, I I just despair at and part of the well the motivation for my own work was that I despaired about the fact that this youth and childhood that I'd had 
um, notwithstanding the poverty, was so rich that I would never have traded it for quids. I, I, I really, uh, I felt that my parents and my elders and my extended family and my community could never have furnished me with a better life. And I, uh, so all of my work has been directed towards villages that sustain and grow children because that's a practical challenge and it's a crucial starting point for the future vision. So, Damien, I'll hand it over to you. So, ladies and gentlemen, with that, now move on to the second stage of our conversation. I'd like uh, if you'd uh, help me to welcome Professor Marcia Langton from the University of Melbourne, Pamela Nathan, who works with creating a safe, secure environment, and the University of Sydney's Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research, Duncan Iverson, who will come up now and offer some thoughts on uh, the conversation that we've heard. Professor Langton, would you like to offer us your thoughts? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Damien. I acknowledge the Gadigal people and their elders past and present. Uh, so, uh, this is a very difficult conversation to have. Uh, so, the word recognise uh, has been unpacked a little here tonight. But I think the important thing uh, for many Aboriginal people about this word recognise is that it gives voice to uh, a kind of inexplicable pain. So <clears throat> perhaps the women in the room will be, uh, especially the older women like myself, will remember when we were young and the word feminism had not been invented. Uh, so remember before the word feminism and after the word feminism, there was no word for our pain. Um, <clears throat> but once we learnt that actually we were full human beings and we were entitled to the same rights as men, the right to vote, the right to speak, the right to have a bank account, the right to own property, etc., uh, the right to enter uh, retail premises, such as, you know, pubs and so on, um, you know, the whole notion of equal rights for women, there was no going back. It was a new way of looking at the world. And there was a word for all that had been denied to us and that inexplicable pain of being an inferior person by virtue of being female. So this word recognise does something very similar but something even more profoundly important in that it gives a voice to the, I the idea that we exist. Okay, so I want you now to try to imagine what it is like to grow up with a notion hanging over your head that you don't exist. Um, and, and again, it's, as you said, Jonathan you don't realise until later on that that was the case. So when did I realise that actually Aboriginal people don't exist? I had to leave the country. And it came in thought bubbles over a long period of time. So in 1970, I flew into Port Moresby and I saw Papua New Guineans loading aeroplanes, running the airport, and I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen black people do that before. It was a great shock to me. And then the country, you know, had black teachers, black nurses. I'd never seen that before. Um, they had their languages. They had the right to speak in their own languages. 
uh, and I could go on and on. And so as I travelled the world over a period of time, I began to realise that the problem for us was essentially that we were simply not recognised as existing and I think actually we still have the same problem. Now, it's highly contested and lots of people would like us to be recognised but think of it from our point of view, especially somebody like me. So I am the descendant of uh, Yaman people and the Yaman lived on the eastern side of the Carnarvon Ranges and were brought to the brink of extinction in the 1800s by a group of vigilantes. Um, and then, you know, much worse happened. I think, you know, the final assault uh, that pretty much knocked off the population was um, the Spanish flu at the end of World War I. So there's a mass grave at what was the old Bundala Reserve well, there are two mass graves, actually, where more than half the population of the Bundala Reserve, as it was called before it was, became a pastoral lease, are buried. And uh, the remainder of the people were force-marched in 1926 to Warabinda um, with their belongings on one dray, driven by Jim Hamilton and uh, the few handfuls of people who survived walking along behind. And they worked walked for hundreds of kilometres to the north to Warabinda. So I grew up in a variety of circumstances, including native camps in south-west Queensland, where I heard lots of my language up until I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, and then I never heard my language spoken again. Well, that was my grandmother's language. So... <clears throat> I've never heard my grandfather's language spoken at all. But we were not allowed to live in houses in town. We were not allowed to buy anything from the shop. We would walk in the back of the shop and then we would stand in a line and we had to wait till every white person was served and it didn't matter how many people came into the shop, we had to wait. Everything was segregated, everything. So... <clears throat> And, you know, the word Aborigines is, you know, well, it was throughout much of my life used as an insult. Abos, Aborigines, etc. <laughs> and to this day, there are many Aboriginal people who won't use the word. And I've even had white people say to me, why do you use the word Aboriginal? Why don't you use a nice word like Indigenous? Because Aboriginal is such a dirty word. So, you know, I, don't, I can't even begin to explain to you what it is like to not be recognised as existing. So the recognition campaign is actually very profoundly important. How we do it is another matter and we don't have time to talk about that. But giving voice to that fundamental pain is, I think, the most restorative healing thing that this nation can do to make amends for its past. Uh, in the same way that, you know, finally somebody came up with the word the stolen generations and the demand for an apology and restituted to all of those thousands of people um, some kind of justice. Thank you, uh, Professor Langton. <laughs> Ms Nathan, you... Offer your thoughts. Well, I might just pick up from Marcia. I think what Marcia had to say almost says it all. And I think that, you know, there is a terrible price to pay if there isn't recognition. And um, I think it is like a psychic death. I actually don't think it's sort of uh, contestable. Uh, it's certainly absurd, but I think there's a sort of terror, nutty state of mind, and it's a land of nobodies. But I think the evidence really um, is in the violence, the trauma, the jail statistics. And, um, you know, I was in Alice Springs on Friday. The chief magistrate said to me that we get 10 uh, domestic violence cases a day. Alice Springs is known as the stabbing capital of the world. What underlies the violence? I think it's trauma and certainly it's non-recognition. And so I think there is a terrible price to pay for non-recognition. I think... Um, that recognition is actually relational and 
uh, I think we can learn something from psychoanalytic thinking in terms of uh, not prescribing, in fact, of endorsing radical hope, but also radical doubt where uh, there is uncertainty, where nobody prescribes or says how to live in two worlds. And I think um, another point to make is that Aboriginal people actually are required to live in two worlds, but we only live in one, and non-Aboriginal people. And I think um, at a Cassie forum we had recently, Walk In My Shoes, a senior man from Yindamu, Yindamu stood up and said, you don't speak my language. And I think he was saying, you don't know me, you don't speak my language, I'm not seen by you, you don't know my world. But of course he has to speak our language as he does in the courts and in the law. And I think also just to pick up from a point that Noel made that there is a, a Western law, but for instance in Central Australia it's actually two laws and uh, one law is outlawed and one law is allowed. And I think that also in, in structural terms adds to issues of invisibility. And when you think about recognition, it's really to be seen or to be known to know or to, to, to see, and it's very simple, actually, but it requires a mutual recognition between two people, I think, two peoples, um, which sort of can allow a shared reality, but also one which is a different reality. And that's only possible if all voices can be heard and if there is equality between peoples uh, to endorse what Hegel has to say for the philosophers present. Thank you, Nathan. Um, Professor Iverson, would you perhaps offer some concluding remarks about this conversation? Uh, that's impossible. Um, look, I think one thing I just wanted to say, picking up on, on Noel's opening comments and, and, and also Jonathan's and now our discussion, um, I think recognition is one of those concepts that actually has a really, uh, I think, critical role to play looking to the future. And I, I think for two reasons. I mean, the way that we think about recognition in philosophy, for example, is in relation both to the individual case of, of identity formation. I, I only understand myself when I'm recognized by another. I, my, my identity is formed in relationship with others. I can't, uh, I can't become who I am without being in relations with others. And then also we think of recognition in a structural sense, uh, getting back to Noel's point. And I think one of the really uh, deep, important things that uh, the language of recognition brings to Australia at this point uh, are these two different ways of understanding ourselves. Uh, and in the first case, as, as Pamela was saying, misrecognition can be a harm, both for the formation of an individual's identity but also a people's identity. And that misrecognition can manifest itself in a structural way. And I think one of the really important points that uh, Marcia and Noel, I think, have made not just tonight but repeatedly is that when we look at the indigenous peoples of Australia, this is, a, this is a set of political nations. So recognition, as I understand it, is a kind of political claim. It's also a, a claim about who I am and who I am as a person. But it's, it's fundamentally for, I think, the culture, one thing we have to grapple with, it is fundamentally a political claim. It's a structural claim. And that is, I think, the challenge that we face now because one of the real difficulties is in the relationship between the indigenous peoples of Australia and the Australian state. Um, that is a, a difficult bridge to, to, to build. The state has not been uh, always acting, to put it mildly, in the interests of the indigenous people of this country. So how do you have a form of recognition through the institutions that Noel mentioned that is genuinely mutual recognition. So uh, for me, I think one thing tonight has really uh, brought home is, is the connection that is so prevalent in Jonathan's work between individual identity formation and collective identity formation, but also in, 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 the, in the work of Noel and Marcia in terms of helping Australia understand the political nature of the claim to recognition. And, and one of the challenges for us, and one reason I think you know, universities have a role to play in this, uh, civil society organizations have a role to play in this, is the recognition that has to happen is understanding what it means for Australia to have this complex political reality where there are 
different peoples who can gain through mu genuine mutual uh, recognition. That's, that's where I think the really challenging, difficult, but ultimately I think hopeful uh, discussion can happen in this country. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll now move on to the final part of this evening's conversation where you'll have an opportunity to continue the conversation with Mr. Pearson, Professor Lear and our panellists over refreshments in the quadrangle. Before we do so, however, I'd like to call upon Christopher Freeland, the National Managing Partner of Baker and McKenzie, to deliver a vote of thanks. Thanks, Damien. It's my great pleasure to thank those involved in tonight's proceedings as evidenced by the uh, wonderful turnout here tonight and the conversations that are happening in diverse communities around the country, the topic of Indigenous recognition has increasing resonance for the Australian people. This all goes very well for the recognition process which is now gaining momentum. I'd like to thank Noel Pearson, Professor Jonathan Lear, Professor Marsha Langton, Pamela Nathan and Professor Iverson for their contribution to tonight's discussion. Thanks for elevating our collective understanding of the issues surrounding recognition, challenging us and leaving us richer for the benefit of your unique knowledge. Can I also applaud the work of the University of Sydney and CIFA, the Constitution Education Fund Australia, in hosting tonight's event. Baker & McKenzie has recently celebrated its 50th anniversary as a global law firm in Australia and we're delighted to be the principal partner of CIFA's Educating About Recognition initiative. As we consider how best to recognise Indigenous Australians, it's vital to understand the system of government that operates in Australia under the Australian Constitution. While constitutional change is an inevitable part of that discussion, the end game is really about recognition of Indigenous Australians that is embraced and embedded into the psyche of all Australians, a true recognition of the first of the three pillars which Noel spoke about tonight. That can only truly happen through education and understanding, and both Noel and Professor Lear have spoken about the necessity of education. Tonight's session has made a unique and important contribution to that process of education and understanding. So on behalf of everyone here tonight, please join with me in again thanking those involved in the organisation of tonight's event, our panel, and especially Noel Pearson and Professor Jonathan Lear. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd be obliged if you'd remain in your seats for a moment while our speakers make their way into the quadrangle uh, through the door over there with the Vice-Chancellor. Um, le let me respond to Pamela. My first thought is that there is no doubt there's, if you have radical hope, the shadow side to that hope is doubt. You can't have real hope for the future without a gnawing doubt about the scale of that challenge and the difficulties involved. So I don't see doubt and hope as alternatives. I see doubt as the real shadow side of hope. No great hope is not accompanied with doubt. I have great hopes for my people, but I harbour and carry ongoing doubts. And I hope that my hopes prevail over the doubt. That's my first point. My second point is that there is no splendid isolation anymore. There is no splendid isolation for tribes unaffected economically, culturally, Our very challenge is defined by the fact 
that we are subject to all of the turbulence of the world. And our challenge is to work out how it is that we keep fragile languages alive with the onslaught of English. And my own view is that there, none of these languages will survive until our children become utterly literate and have the full facility to speak the Queen's English and Guggiamir and Guggialangi and to write in both. I've seen it hundred and twenty years ago, our ancestors at the Cape Bedford Lutheran Mission were literate in English and in their own language taught by the missionaries. And that literacy in both languages continued throughout the 20th century. If I reject anything, I reject the idea that somehow we can make secluded islands of splendid isolation. That is not a reality that I've ever seen in any corner of the country. Welfare, the economy of the wider Australian community has seeped into every corner of the continent, as has the culture and the language, and the media and the technology. And our challenge is to be able to keep the hearth going, notwithstanding the rupturing of our original isolation. I have a very strong conviction in that. And uh, I refuse to be deterred um, with, with, a, with some kind of fantasy about reconstructing some kind of tribal isolation. We are now irrevocably part of a global world with all of the pressures of that world's economy and culture and technology and media and all kinds of intrusion. And we've got to find the means to be able to sustain our identity and culture notwithstanding that. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the formalities. Um, if you could just wait, as I said, um, for our speakers to exit through this door, and then uh, you're welcome to join them through their uh, for refreshments. Uh, you can also leave through the back door, and then you have to walk across and come back into the quad, uh, but you're welcome now to, to, to go out and uh, enjoy the refreshments with them. Thank you. <laughs>